Welcome back, PokerCasters. Chase and Drew here for another episode of Top 2 PokerCasts. Cast, 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 cast. <laughs> uh, bringing you guys some uh, strategy content today. We're going to have some bet sizing. We're going to talk about some mental game stuff with dealing with a downswing. Also, the intergalactic segment on tipping and uh, a few mailbag hands. So uh, let's get into it, Drew. But first, we got to catch up because I haven't. We haven't done a poker cast for like two months because we're lazy. I know it's been a really, really long amount of time, and I wish, I wish I could uh, say that I've been off helping people with all the crises going on or protesting something. But I think the reality oh, we, is we, we should have made been, it. Yeah, we should have made something legit, like we we're helping out with hurricane relief or something. Because I mean, legitimately, there's so much going on in the world. But I mean, with you and I, like, there's no pretty much business as usual, right? Um, right, like I was eating goldfish and watching YouTube, I admit it. Yeah, uh, I discovered, <laughs> for some of you that know this obscure reference, I discovered a funny uh, and sadistic thing called llamas with hats that I just shared with Chase. Carl, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, definitely not PG-13. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, for me, I've been pretty busy. One good thing, we won our, our basketball league, uh, which was kind of fun. And, I don't know, I've just nice. been keeping busy with life. Um, work we're undergoing a lot of remodels of commerce um, a lot of big changes there are under works um haven't been able to play any poker on my end uh it's been gosh been at least a month and a half almost two months uh what about you chase have you been i'm sure playing plenty um you've been yeah, just it is my job locally, so right? i do i do find the time to work <laughs> but I've, I've been on a downswing so i've been less motivated to work and kind of just taking you know, there's a healthy way and an unhealthy way to deal with a downswing. I've been doing a little bit of each. So, yeah, I haven't been playing quite as much as I should have. Um, but, yeah, just trying to get through the downer. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, and I know you and I have talked a little bit. Uh, the downer is pretty significant, right? And and more than that, I think it's um, going to kind of affect, and we'll talk about it in different segments in the podcast. But you've just been taking a lot of swings, Uh Right. Talk us through kind of like what's been going on with you and, and you've just been playing at your local casino, right? Right. I've been playing the at the MGM out here in Maryland, D.C. area. And yeah, I mean, like we talked about last podcast, uh, took a downswing in Vegas, you know, fired a lot of bullets. Um, but, you know, felt good about it overall. It's it's a good time of year to to fire some extra bullets. So, you know, that's fine. I think expenses everything was said and done probably was down like twenty three thousand at the world series so not not as bad as it could have been um had a couple deep runs yeah it was whatever uh then i came back and went on a month-long uh just downswing at the local casino and yeah taking some massive swings so you know i'm playing bigger than i ever have so that means i've been playing a lot of 10 25 no limit and man last month the games, the action was just sick. We had a, a couple times last month where it was a 10-25 game, but it was playing 10-25-50, often $100 straddle, sometimes $200 straddle. If the right person was there, $400 straddle. I mean, it was just a, there was a couple nights like that last last month where the game was just off the hook, bouncing off the walls, locked the doors. It was crazy. So naturally, it's going to be massive swings. 
Oh, and, and the uh, pros actually, we uh, didn't it. actually shut you out of this game for once. You you found a you found a way <laughs> into this game because they knew you, they must have known that you were running bad. So they're like, hey, let's let that uh, the bearded guy who keeps losing in. Um, <laughs> versus yeah, getting frozen out like on a downswing, I'd have been first on the list. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, well, before that, like one other thing I think that's been interesting uh, following your life and kind of chronicling uh, the life and times of of the Bianchi uh, monster. You've been playing around and kind of fussing with cryptocurrencies a lot. Like I, I am. It's one of those things that it, to me, it's it's completely Greek and it looks fascinating. But to me, it just looks like nose open gambling. For those of you out there that <laughs> that know, like Bitcoin Chase is like heavily uh, invested now into the dark arts of the cryptocurrency. Walk us through that a couple minutes before we just jump into the rest of the pod. Sure. Yeah. So I would, if I was to compare, so the cryptocurrency market right now is like the money maker boom of poker. Like there is just so much money oh, to be gosh. made if you have any kind of idea what you're, what you're looking at on crypto. So he's drinking. He I, drank I've been the Kool Aid, ladies and gentlemen. He yeah, drank the honestly, like I'm not super knowledgeable on crypto, but at this point, you could take like the top 50 cryptocurrencies put them on a dartboard and throw darts and probably make money. So uh, I've been putting a lot of uh, time and energy into researching cryptos, and I'm sure that's detracting from my time uh, spent playing poker and studying poker for sure. Uh, but it's it's been good. Uh, I'm actually um, I'm really heavy on this one crypto that's... Uh, I, I took my entire crypto portfolio and uh, liquidated it and put it all in this one cryptocurrency. So I'm taking a high risk spot right now, but uh, I, I'm I'm optimistic that it's going to make me six figures by the end of the year. Gosh, it feels like that one time I was like sweating you online. One of the, the three times when you're like, ah, and you're hovering over the clicker fold button and you had like uh, you were defending your blind and you got some trash king and you got like ace king X and you had middle pair and you like called off a triple barrel uh and you put everything on that and then you typed in the chat box good game and just absolutely yeah if this uh if this crypto crashes it'll be a gg in my crypto portfolio that's for sure yeah so pretty much all financial sense when they tell you to like diversify and stuff you're just like man why do that i'm gonna put it all into this one cryptocurrency and hope for the best so if you want to sweat chase in cryptocurrencies go ahead and just i think follow his instagram or even his social feeds it's been uh, entertaining to say the least well, let's go back in and talk a little bit more about how you're dealing with this downswing. So are you, has it impacted your bankroll to the point that you're actually making some adjustments or are you still full speed ahead, jumping into the game when it's good? I mean, do you look back and do you think you made any mistakes at this point um, with some of your decision to jump into some of these games? Uh, I think that I'm, I'm probably not game selecting as well as I should be. And that's something that I'm actively doing now is being more uh aware of my game selection and that's not to say that like my bankroll's at a point where i need to like step down or not play as much at of like 10 25 but um i think i was just more or less uh not game selecting at all and just playing 10 25 whenever it ran and i think that's just a mistake that like the 510 is always you know often good and the 25 is simply always good so yeah i think i got a little uh little too uh prideful to uh drop down and not play in the big game when it wasn't uh as good as say playing a 510 element so yeah that's something i need to be more aware of and uh 
I, I, my bankroll's plenty healthy that I'm not too worried about uh, not being able to play that game. So that's fortunate. Well, I mean, I think that's good. I, I notice um, there's a lot of a lot of people, uh, especially at Commerce in California, because we have so many different tiers um, and there's so much game selection of Commerce. But it's funny, uh, the hotel section starts at 1020 blinds for the No Limit game. So it's a $600 minimum buy-in, but most people are sitting anywhere from 2000 to 10000 on the game. Um, and then the No Limit games in the hotel, the separated kind of section, if you've ever been to Commerce, it goes much bigger than that. And then in the main section of poker, which houses about 100 tables, there's a 5-5, which is $300 to $500 buy-in, and a 5-10 blind, 500 to $1,500. And there's certain players that just outright refuse to drop down from like the 10-20 no limit to take the, the, like the three-minute walk, four-minute walk down a ramp around a, a little bend and go down to the main section. I think it's just they feel they, they lose the prestige of being a, a hotel-only section player. And in reality, some of the games down in the main section, part of the main floor, are definitely as good, if not better. Um, so I think, you know, it's just something for me. Practically, you got to just guard yourself against that idea that, you know, you got to find the best game um, for your money. And it's not always necessarily the biggest game. Agree. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I think just being kind of emotionally raw after a long downswing is something that I haven't dealt with as well as I could have. Um, I've, I had I had one of, I had my biggest straight up my biggest loss I've ever had uh, in uh, what was that in August. I lost twenty six thousand in one session. And that just man, oh, it took the wind out of my sails for for a couple days. And just like emotionally getting over that, uh, yeah, it's, it's just when you take some big losses like that, especially when you're already on a downswing, uh, I think it's hard to go into your next session and not be like ready to blow, you know? So just uh, the amount of uh, frustration that would have to build up to get me on tilt uh, has, is I'm just more raw and ready to kind of go off the handle, so... Uh, I've, I've gotten back into uh, journaling pre-session and trying to uh, do a mental game journal. So that's helped. So so just, you know, kind of like back to the fundamentals on some of that, right? Which is making a more, you know, I think going back to the mental game, which we referenced in the beginning of the pod, I think it's probably going back to those things that feel like at this point they should be automatic, but maybe aren't. Um, and making them an act of... Um, and you know, a conscious effort to do some of those things. Right. And just be conscious of, of certain things you may or may not be doing, um, in session and before your session and afterwards, and just making sure the study component is there is probably huge. Um, cause it's easier to disregard those things when you're having success. I think that that's the problem is that when things are going well in life, and I think this is true, like mentally, emotionally, financially, poker, spiritually, just anything, when things are good, most people take their foot off the gas and they don't reinforce whatever they're doing with um, the learning habits. And it's a lot of time the storms in life that that put us back on course. And it's actually probably positive for our long-term growth if we allow it to be. Um, right. And well, one thing that I probably should touch on too is that there is a spiritual aspect where I felt very convicted of putting too much of my identity in my work. So when poker started to go bad, I was just like, 
feeling bad about myself as a person, which is definitely not a good place to be. I mean, that definitely points out that like, wow, I hold my identity in my work more than in Jesus sometimes. So that was a good heart check for me. I mean, uh, I absolutely believe that God is going to use everything that happens. Like he is, there is nothing that's not going to go used by him. So it was good in the sense that it, it brought that up for me so I could address it. Um, it's something that I brought to like our church, uh, small group that we get together once a week. And I, you know, I talked about it with the guys, just kind of work through that. And, uh, it, it was really good that it reinforced my prayer life. Like, you know, I'm, I'm actively seeking the Lord in my work day. So in that regard, I mean, it's really good that I, I kind of got that refocus, um, through the downswing and, uh, feeling much more, uh, just stable, you know, I mean, when, when you do things with the Lord in your day and you invite him into your day, it, it just goes better. So in that regard, um, I'm feeling much better now too. Good, good. Well, and something kind of fun we talked about, which is kind of crazy is, um, so you're finally at that level of where thinking of the practical implications of some of the money that you're winning and losing is pretty disgusting. Like when you're losing, you know, and not to, to put salt in the wound, but also winning when you're winning or losing big five figures a day. And that's like not some crazy situation. It's pretty expected that when you're buying into a game, that's 25, 50, a hundred, 200, that you're going to take a five figure swing one way or another. Um, to me, I asked you a question about a month ago when we were like, considering maybe that we should do a podcast um is just isn't it weird the real money like um i think the lack of understanding or i guess the lack of presence of mind when you're playing because in one sense you have to look at it just betting units chips or chips or chips but i like sit back at commerce and i watch some of the bigger games we had like a 1000 2000 combo the other day and some huge pots because we had both limit and then they also had some pot limit aspects and we're just watching these huge massive pots build and it's like, um, you know, my wife and I were looking at maybe opening up a restaurant and I shared that with you. Um, you know, if you look into food, like you can get like a cheap meal. There's still like a 99 cent menu at like most fast food restaurants, right? So like a cheap meal is like three, four bucks. But I mean, most expensive meals, if you go to even like a Michelin star restaurant are only a couple hundred dollars, you know, per person, which is, it is extremely expensive, but that's like a world-class meal. What's What's crazy to think about is, you're losing in blinds sometimes enough for one person to like go to a world-class meal. Like, isn't that kind of like, isn't it weird that you have to balance out the two, which is you have to be detached from the money yet at the same time, you know, practically the money does have implications. Cause how do you balance like real life? Cause at the chase I used to know, especially when we get to tipping and we kind of discuss that you used to be the guy who's like, Oh, I don't want to spend money on that. It's like an extra two bucks. You know, and I think that's, I think that's like good, um, it's good stewardship, right? Of your money. But isn't it kind of awkward when you're like, oh, I don't want to spend extra. I don't want to buy a $4 Coke at a movie theater. Screw that. And yet you're like putting it, you're posting a blind because you have to go to the restroom and it's like 150 for the small and the big. Right. Right. Or 25, 50, <laughs> whatever. I mean, is, isn't that kind of just like an odd it I mean, is. Uh, every once in a while, <laughs> I'll turn to one of my friends and I'll say, man, isn't it insane the amount of money that we're playing for right now? Like, you know, I have $12,000 in front of me. We just played a 5K pot and it was no big deal. Like, this is insanity. You know, this is like a normal person's monthly paycheck that was in that pot. 
Yeah, it it is pretty wild when you sit back and think about it. And and but the thing is, in game you just have to be desensitized to it. Um, yeah, at some point it just becomes normal. You know, it normalizes. Is that kind of disgusting about humans? Is we just normalize things that like probably shouldn't be? You know, like right. all I mean, good and bad, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I just think it's funny. Like, uh, you know, if I ever were to be able to get to that level, one thing I would do is I would have like probably two or three things a year that were on my like bucket list or short list of things to do that wouldn't be like wouldn't be hundred thousand dollars, but I would do something. Do do a couple things a year, especially with your wife. You know, I think you guys go to Disney World and you guys do a bunch of things, but. I just think it's so interesting because I know some professional poker players that live very humble lives and they are a couple levels ab- above your level of success, but they still like, it seem, It seems like they don't buy new clothes or at least if they do, they never wear it in the poker room, you know, and they just, you know, drive the same 19, you know, 98, toy, you know, Toyota Camry. Yeah, I, I like, got a couple, I got a couple funny stories. So one, there's this guy in our poker room that wears the exact same outfit every day. And like, I, I won't disclose too much, but, uh, <laughs> so he wears like the same undershirt and the same jacket every single day. And some of the other high stakes regs, they made a side bet. They're like, how much, how many, how, what odds would I have to lay you to bet that this player is not going to come in? Like he's going to come in wearing a different shirt in the next like three months. And it was something astronomical, like 12 to one that they would not see him in a different shirt wow. in the next three months. And, and you can't taint it. It was you can't classic too because, right? right. Uh, the best part was like a couple weeks late, a couple weeks into the bet, he comes in with a different undershirt because like he had worn his other undershirt so much that it was worn out, so he had to get a new one. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's <laughs> like an undershirt the anomaly. Well, and then, but I mean, that's your. Um, I mean, that he's playing your stakes, right? Like he's. He's actually yeah, playing. He plays a lot of 510. Yeah. I mean, he plays yeah, he plays pretty big. I mean, that's just and that that kind of speaks to the industry as a whole. I mean, if if your friends um I don't I wish I had his information, but Andrew Peeper, I won't divulge much to our listeners, but if you guys um chase when you stream online stuff, ask him. He's gone over an, another like interesting uh personal experience, but it's 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 interesting and he keeps a a vlog, but it's interesting to me just uh some poker players are just we're just a weird group and that's beautiful but it's just it's still it's still just fascinating to me you know just like to you sometimes you just step back and you're just like man we're playing for a lot of money <laughs> just, i think you have to have those moments and you have to appreciate them you know from time to time absolutely um all right well let's uh let's move on to like a little bit of uh back of the house stuff you want to chase cue it up you what do you want to like go see some live music or something no no are you You sure you want to go you don't want to go to the cantina and hear oh gosh hear a little music all right all right no no you know okay well we're here we're to our what would typically be (laughs) I don't know. I can't sing to it. Because, like, play the music again. You can't really sing to that, can you? I mean, it would probably... No, dude. I mean, I like, like, yeah, it's just mellow background music. Yeah, it's just... Okay, so let's get into it. I, I think that um, 
we were going to try to devote this only to floor calls, but I think that there's something that we discussed many years ago when you were becoming a professional. Um, and both of us worked in the industry. Um, I still work in the industry. Um, and it's tipping. And I think we, we were talking like big concept, macro level tipping. And you and I actually got in like a, like, cause we were younger men back then. We had always getting heated arguments and one of us would get like pissed off. Um, but you're pretty nitty when it comes to tipping, right? Like, I can't remember what the situation was, but you you definitely were like the straight 10% tipper for food. Like you're like, whoa, I'm never giving more than 10% or, you know. Right. Um, which is still probably the case, right? No, I've, I've actually become very generous with tipping for any service industry stuff, but especially meals, like usually on the 20, 25% side. Oh, really? Okay, good. So, so okay, tipping segment is completely done. Uh, five years in the future, Chase agreed with the <laughs> argument we had in the past, so I win. So that's okay. Now the podcast is finished. Um, we don't ever have to talk about anything ever again. I just want you to know that uh, you know here here we are, four or five years in the future. I'm correct, bro. I mean, sanctified by Christ, you know. <laughs> my, uh-huh. my generosity has grown with my age and my wisdom, stature okay. among men. And you've learned not to argue with your elder of two years, uh, which is which is my, me. My humility can uh-huh. use some work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think it's funny because you, you took a pretty hard line against that in the past. And then and I, I, I was pretty immature about it too. I, I was of the school of thought. I was like, well, these people are, are working hard for a living. This is part of their their sustenance. Um, and I always advocate a pretty generous, um, generous tipping, especially at restaurants. And, you know, and wherever you fall on the spectrum as you're listening to this, um, I find it's pretty awkward the way people tip um, at the table. You know, and how, because I see that there's a, I mean, if you look at it, some pros take the stance eventually, like, oh my gosh, you know, if you aggregate it out over the course of a year, it ends up being a huge figure, uh, which is absolutely correct. But on the other end, I think that there's a larger problem if we don't tip, um, which is these casinos do pay these dealers most of the time minimum wage or right around there. So you're going to lose a lot of the more talented help and a lot of the people that do a, a better job. Um, so I think as poker players, we do need to tip. I think that's something that is, is important. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's kind of a self, self perpetuating, uh, problem because, you know, if you're unhappy with the service, then you don't tip and then the service gets worse and then you really don't want to tip. So, yeah, I think there's, I think that it's good to have a kind of like baseline, uh, amount. And I, I've always done. Not always, but mostly done, you know, a dollar per hand. You win a hand, you give them a dollar. Um, the only caveat I would make is if I if I steal the blinds preflop or something, I won't tip. But. Yeah, and, and for me, I you know, you and I talked about it in the past. Now, I've always thought for professionals, kind of what a cool idea would be um, and something that I've always thought um, would be nice if the industry adopted as a whole is dealers on average deal 30 minutes some place they deal longer, but rarely do they deal less than 30 minutes. Like in California, most of them are on like 45 minute downs. So I've always thought it would be good to, um, when a dealer goes to the table, especially if you're a regular, uh, at the beginning of their down, if you know they're a good dealer, if you know they run a clean game, you just tip them like 3 to $4, maybe $5, depending on the game stakes and what you can afford and how serious or casual you are. Um, and you're able to tip them based on the way that they service the table and how they take care of the game um, versus I think it's really odd as professional or as like um, strategic players that we tip them based on 
whether or not they give us a pot or not, which is they don't do any more or less work during that time. You know, but if we get lucky, we're just going to tip them. Or if we get fortunate in that situation that we end up winning the hand. So for me, uh, I've always thought that if we adopted that as a large group, as an industry, I think that there's some value there because they still are able to make a good hourly rate, but we're able to kind of weed out some of the weaker dealers. I mean, I know you you tried that. Chase, you want to talk a little bit about your thoughts on I that? I did. When I first moved out here to Maryland, I was playing primarily 2-5 No Limit, and I was playing at the Horseshoe in Baltimore a lot. And they had a, man, they had some weak dealers. Just overall, pretty weak uh, staff. Um, but yeah, what I did was I would tip the dealers like on a baseline $2 per down and up to $5 for the very strong dealers. So if, if one of the best dealers in the house sat down, I would give them five bucks and say, thanks for dealing or whatever. You know, like I didn't really say anything. They just understood what was going on. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's a pretty good I think it's not a bad way to do it. Um, some dealers get really salty about it if you give them $2 and then they push you like eight pots in a row um, cause, because it's just kind of ingrained in the culture. So while I think it's a cool idea, I don't know if, you know, some you might rub some people the wrong way even though your intentions are pure. I do think it's a cool idea. And we should certainly be taking care of staff because... You know, like we said, it if you don't take care of them, all the good dealers leave. So, yeah. Uh, the other thing I think that's interesting is don't forget that uh, find out in your in your area. But a lot of times the floor staff takes tips, and I think we've mentioned this before. But I think that there's a lot of value in just like um, whatever game you're playing, even like five bucks uh, occasionally can go a long ways uh, for the floor staff because a lot of times they'll be able to tell you about upcoming promotions or do things within their power uh, to help you. Even simple things like here at Commerce, we can do parking passes. There's just a lot of benefits, meal comps. There's a lot of value for taking care of the staff. And I think in general, too, you have to remember, um, if they do a good job, they're working quite hard as well because they're dealing with all the conflict and the issues that arise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, t- I take care of the floor staff. And yeah, just for simple things, like if there's no chip runner around, they'll they'll like be happy to get me chips because I take care of them. You know, like stuff like that. I mean, they, they get other people's chips too, but I don't know. I think it's just, again, rewarding them for, for working hard. So, yeah. yeah. I think that's totally acceptable. Chase. Chase, guess what? Guess what? What? Th- this is the part of the podcast where you do lots of talkings and Andrew does lots of listening. Because now we've hit the strategy portion of our, of our podcast. Okay. <laughs> the resident pro steps in. Yeah, this is what you get paid the big bucks from other people's pockets to do. No, I think um, this week we, or this podcast, not this week, rather, we wanted to talk about bet sizing a little bit. You know, you and I had a conversation a little bit about um, just just the importance and how a lot of times um, we get ourselves into bad spots, I think. And some of the, the mailbag we've um, curated this week uh, shows some bet sizing, I guess, issues when we don't bet size correctly. Um, but just walk us through kind of uh, your take on bet sizing from a concept basis. Okay. Uh, the first one I'm going to hit on is something I think that's going to apply to a lot of people. A lot of people that either come from a tournament background or an online poker background. So in tournaments, in tournaments and in online poker, you tend to have 
shallower stack sizes, especially in tournaments. Tournaments, you'll often be 10 to 40 big blinds. Like 40 big blinds is quite a bit in tournament. So a lot of people that come from that background don't really adjust to playing, say, a live cash game where you got 200 to 400 big blinds is not uncommon at all in a cash game. So the mistake that they make is that when you're on a short stack, it's okay to have a smaller bet size because you don't have as much to worry about from, say, a big blind defending and realizing their equity. It's not going to cost you as much. And often in like a tournament, you you have a lot of fold equity with like a min raise or a 2.5x or something like that. So I, I think uh, a lot of people fail to change their bet size with their stack size. So we have more incentive when we have a deeper stack to have, in general, a bigger bet size. So this applies pre-flop, where you should be going, getting, when you're deep stack, you should be getting away from the like min raise 2.5x and getting more into the like 3x and even like 3.5 or 4x. Um, and that's especially going to apply to live cash games. Well, that, that's uh, interesting. Does that make sense from your experience too? Yeah, I mean, because essentially what you're saying is in, in a way... Um, to put it in layman's terms, and, and certainly correct me if I'm wrong, one of the things we want to do is we want to um, protect ourselves uh, against the reverse implied odds of when we make a hand and we get into, someone ends up flopping a set um, and they're able to, I guess, take us to value town. Uh, so we don't want them to be able to realize their equity uh, cheaper to make to make nut hands and then make us pay off. Is that... Is that kind yeah, of that's exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. So say you're on the flop and it's a fairly wet flop. Now, if you're 20 blinds effective and you have top pair, even if it's a wet flop, like you're never really going to be making a mistake by getting your chips in or, you know, whatever, even if it becomes like not the greatest run out. It's not going to be a big deal. Like you're only gonna, you're only on the hook for twenty blinds. But if we take that scenario and say we have two hundred blinds, well, if we make a really small bet size on the flop, uh, letting someone realize their equity could end up costing us two hundred big blinds, three hundred big blinds. So, uh, blowing people, getting people off of their equity and not letting people realize equity when we're deeper stack is going to have a bigger importance because the game is no limit. So. Your whole stack's on the line in any given hand. So I think that's a, a very common one that uh, a lot of tournament players and people coming from online cash where they're playing 100 big blinds effective might might have a tendency to go a little bit smaller than might be called for for deeper stack cash games. Well, and, and even at the lower levels, um, I mean, we we don't even have to... Sometimes we can play, what is it, exploitative? Where if, P, if we're in a really loose, juicy game, you know... We can go with our value hands a little bit bigger if we're still getting multi-way action, uh, and so that factors into sizing as well. Sure, yeah, uh, I think that's a good point. Players that are moving up in stakes, uh, say if you're playing like one two, uh, it, you can really just do whatever makes the most immediate sense for your hand. So like, give a marginal. You have like a decent hand, and you think that they have a pretty weak hand. Well, you can just and you're on the river. Well, just bet like. A fourth of the pot that's fine you know like this guy's not gonna probably do anything about it but as you move up in stakes stuff like that's gonna become very transparent and you're gonna find players that are gonna go wow this guy bet a fourth pot i saw him do that with like middle pair last time i'm just gonna raise here so yeah that's something um you're 
a lot of uh, small stakes players, they just bet whatever makes most sense for their hand instead of what makes most sense for their range. And uh, that actually brings up another point. Um, so range advantage. If you There's this like, it's kind of controversial. So on the one hand, say the flop comes king seven deuce, right? The pre, your pre-flop, pre-flop raiser and they're the big blind and they defend. Now on king seven deuce, you, the pre-flop raiser has range advantage, right? Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, sorry, I was, I was kind of breaking up there. Um, oh yeah, no problem. Yeah, so uh, when they when you have a big range advantage, what makes the most sense, right? You just you bet, right? And what uh, was like in vogue uh, starting a couple of years ago was that when you have a huge range advantage, you bet small because it's really hard for your opponent to call. You give yourself a good price on a bluff, but. What a very well-respected high-stakes player said, which makes a lot of sense, is instead of betting small, you should just find more bluffs. So I thought that was really interesting, kind of turn that whole small bet-sizing strategy on its head a little bit. So that's so, something I've been thinking about lately. Well, I, I, but I think the, the prevailing point there is we need to be strategically adjusting in one of two ways, which is we don't... I mean, he's absolutely correct that we don't have to adjust... Um, the sizing down, but we can adjust the bluffing frequency up and still show profit that way. Um, but wouldn't you agree that it's not completely out of line to also consider a smaller sizing? I mean, it's not, but, but, but with that, um, I guess we're, we're taking on the risk implications of like one of the first concepts you covered, which is when we're playing really deep against other players that effectively have a similar stack size, you know, and, and the board, depending on the board texture, sometimes that's going to be definitely suboptimal, especially if it's a tricky player or a player that, um, I guess, balances well and is, you know, is deceptive. Um, they can give us some hard spots because we're not going to be able to have as solid reads on them versus, like, let's say an ABC player who's like a um, just a casual player where we can usually tell what they're doing and how they're going to react on a lot of different uh, runouts. Right. Yeah, I don't know if I explained that very well, but yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. Because uh, because we're we're what you essentially are saying is is that we can we can find one of two ways to balance that, which is and and I liked what you I wish um, so you said a really high or a really respected cash game player proposed that instead of just adjusting the bet size down um, to give us better prices on our bluffs as well as our our value bets. Um, that we could just add more bluffs in to whatever our range going forward is. Right. Um, right. I so I think viable, right? Yes. I, I, so I think either is viable, but I think it makes a lot more sense to just construct your range more appropriately than adjust your bet size. Okay. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's still something I'm kind of exploring. It kind of blew my mind when I, thought about it and i still really haven't developed my thoughts fully on it but it's something that i'm thinking about so if you guys can give us some knowledge write me an email and set me straight on that because i would love to hear your thoughts on that yeah uh i think it's Um, great for a conversation yeah yeah absolutely uh another one is that i think is really uh easy to easy to start doing but it's really easy to be lazy about it is to plan ahead for your bet sizes. 
So when you're on the flop and it's a $100 pot and you have $300 behind, let's start thinking, and you have a hand that you're probably going to go for three streets of value, like you need to be thinking right then, what is my bet size going to be on the flop turn and river? You can't just pick whatever bet size, like, oh, I always half pot it and just half pot it on the flop and then hope that it comes out to something reasonable on the river. No, you should be thinking ahead. You should be thinking there's $100 in the pot. We have 300 in stacks. So if I bet 50 on the flop, there's going to be 200 in the pot and we're going to have 250. Then what do I do on the turn? Can I bet 75 and then we have 175? Or maybe should I go slightly smaller on the flop and then so go 40 on the flop and then like 75 on the turn and then set up a nice meaty river shove. You know, so that's, that's the kind of stuff you need to be thinking ahead about. And it's a really easy adjustment to make. You just need to be conscious of it. Did you, did you just say meaty river shove? I think yes. that's my, my fa- new favorite. Robbing uh, river shove. All right. We're definitely editing. Uh, <laughs> that was just, you know, I'm sorry for all of our, all of our two female listeners uh, to hear. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, you've now produced something that's going to haunt the nightmares of, of people for, <laughs> for weeks. Um, but no, let, I, I think this is perfect. Let's, um, let's dive into the mailbag. Cause it, it illustrates some of these concepts you're actually talking about where, you know, for myself that, you know, I am a converted tournament player. I don't play much, no limit. Um, these hands are from listeners, but I'm very guilty of, of linear thinking where I'm, I'm on the street. Um, I'm on the flop. I'm on, you know, the Turner river. And I don't think of the implications uh, and I just end up there and I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do in this spot? I'm not really planning out how that affects future sizing. And I think, um, do you want to handle the first hand and kind of walk through that? Yeah, let's hop into it. So first hand in the mailbag from uh, one of our regular listeners He's playing a one, two, no limit game at Planet Hollywood, $380 effective. And this one has a bit of a twist. Middle position does the old Mississippi straddle for $20 in a one, two game. <laughs> So if you're not familiar with the way Mississippi straddle works is you can straddle from any position and then after the straddle pre-flop, the action starts to the left of the straddle. So this guy straddles in middle position and our hero is under the gun plus one. So the, he's under the gun plus one, the guy to his left straddles, and then the action starts on that guy's left. So middle position straddles for $20 and everyone folds around to our hero under the gun plus one with pocket kings. Now, let me stop right here, Drew. 380 effective, pocket kings. This guy straddled to 20 bucks. Well, ignoring our hand, what's your bet size here? Um, I am probably going to go... Situationally, I'm going to probably go about 60 or 65. Um, one of the reasons for that is I think that... I think kind of one of the concepts like you're talking about in a one, two, no limit game, if you look at the amount of big blinds, it is pretty gross that like he changes the nature of the game a little bit by just straddling to 20, which is 10 big blinds right away. Um, But I mean, we have a pretty deep, I mean, how many big blinds are we? We're like, uh, you said we're 380. We're almost almost 200 big blinds um, effective, right? Right. But here's another way to think about it too, is that if, if we look at the straddle as a blind, we're only 19 blinds effective. Okay, interesting, right? So so you're looking at it from situationally in the hand. I was looking at it from an actual game and like the the perspective that right. you know, we're actually playing a lot of big blinds 
for this particular stakes, which is not as valid, I suppose, as... I mean, there's some validity looking at that way, but for discussion, really, we need to be evaluating this particular hand. So Right, yeah. This is where, when we talked about bet sizing, scaling with stack size, we need to be aware of... Like, this is kind of an interesting wrinkle with the straddle. So if we think of the big blinds $20 and we have 380, so, okay, we're 20 blinds effective. So when we talked about scaling our bet size with stack size, 20 blinds effective, I have no problem going with like a 2.5x. Our hero ends up going 45 here, which is uh, $5 over a min raise. I think that's too small because if we think about what our whole range wants to do, like, are we really going 45 here with like 10-8 suited? There's plenty of hands that I want to open up that aren't premium, right? So I, I think if we want to have any steals here, we need to go at least $50. I would say anywhere 50 to 60 would be totally fine. Yeah, and, and that's exactly the reason why. I think that we need to be able, we need to be attacking in this in this situation since it's folded around to us. Um, we have a really good... Um, we're in a really good steal spot because he's dealt a random hand, obviously. So there's a certain percentage of the time we're supposed to just be able to take it down. But, I mean, we're just inviting action at 45. Um, right. It, it would be actually kind of, as an aside, a random thought, it would be kind of an interesting spot to do some kind of limping strategy. And even, like, exploitably, just, like, limping aces and kings here is probably totally fine against this guy's straddle for <laughs> 10 big lines. Yeah. But anyway, let's keep going. We uh, raise it up to 45 bucks, and the straddler calls. So we're heads up, and the flop comes Jack-5-3 Rainbow. Jack-5-3 Rainbow, pretty dry flop. Hero bets $60. So it's 60 into a little bit over 90. 90, I mean, right. 90 whatever, because there's rake and other things. But um, mm-hmm. 60 into 90. Um, to me, I think it feels like, again, because I, I know the person submitting this hand, that, the, that he's looking at this particular street, which he's going two-thirds because it's pretty dry, um, which, you know, on its face is not that bad. But when you talk about some of the implications of what we're going to do on future streets um, on a pretty dry board texture, I mean, what are you thinking as played we should be betting and why? Right. So if we look at this, we have $335 in our stack and there's $90 in the pot. So if we think, I mean, we have kings on all undercards. I'm thinking, okay, I'm probably, on most runouts, I'm going to go bet, bet, shove. So that, how can we do that most effective? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think in my head, there's $90 in the pot. Let's say I want to bet $50. So then there's going to be $190 in the pot. We're going to have $270. And then I can bet $75. Well, maybe that's, maybe that's a little too big. So then I'm going to go, oh, maybe I'll bet... $45 again and then I can go 70 and then I can shove for whatever that would be like 170 or whatever 175 so yeah we need to be thinking about that in game and I think our whole range probably wants to go more like half pot here so I think his $60 sizing is maybe a little on the big side hmm yeah I completely agree I mean that makes sense to me um alright so, so as played maybe could go a little smaller but as played, he bets 60, and the opponent calls. Good news. Okay. Now, turn comes a jack. So now the board reads, jack, five, three, jack. Hmm. Tough spot. So now the pot is 120 plus 90. 210. Pot is 210. We have 270, 275. 
effective, roughly. Uh, yep, two seventy five effective. I mean, we discussed this hand a little bit earlier in our quick preparation. To me, it seems this is a pretty standard way ahead, way behind spot. I mean, you agree we should probably be be checking and and hoping to pick off some bluffs here, um, and just kind of. Right. I think for our specific hand, this is definitely a bad card, um, and there's probably a lot of hands in our range that are going to be either giving up or just checking here because it's hard for us to keep bluffing. Say we have like uh, ace queen right here. We have a gutter and two overs. Well, it's pretty hard for us to rep a whole lot. Um, we're probably going to not get him to fold any like pair below jacks. Like if he's got pocket sevens, he's probably not folding at this point. So yeah, I think I'd be checking with a lot of my range and I'd, probably be checking kings here a lot of the time makes sense to me um so as played though uh our hero ends up betting 100 and the villain ends up jamming for 175 more on top of the 100 so it's 275 total um we have to call off 175 um what do you think in that spot i mean i are you ever finding a fold i mean i just i can't see it no, I, I yeah, I can't see it either. I think it, the times that we do bet our kings on the turn, we just have to go with it. I mean, certainly against this guy who may be getting out of line. Right. Uh, I think it's just pretty standard call off, and like if you got better, nice hand. Yep. And we yeah. end up calling rivers a ten. Villain shows jack ten, so he ends up filling up. The nuts. The nuts. Um, even a squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. So, but I think that's a great illustration. I mean, I could see myself certainly playing the hand pretty similarly, but I mean, the type of concepts we're talking about is just really thinking through on future streets, our sizing on the flop versus the flop texture and just taking the time to be present in mind and think that through because you can kind of plan out a little bit of a better sequence um, on a lot of runouts of how we can get the money in. Yeah, I think it's a really good exercise. Um, just in your downtime at the table when you're watching a hand, think to yourself like, okay, if I wanted to get uh, three streets of value on this hand, what would my bet sizes be? And kind of like just get good at doing that mental math on the fly. And you'll get better at it. You just have to put in the uh, just put in the time to, uh, to actually do that. All right, I think that was a pretty good rundown. That uh, was... <laughs> Whoa, what's going <laughs> that on? That was... Uh... <laughs> you're such a troll. How am I? Chase, you're being weird here. Uh, I mean, you already <laughs> talked about some terrible into window that's gonna like night give people night terrors. Um, you can call and write to Chase. Um, he'll empty out his box for therapy. So if you need, you know, just let him know. Um, but I think I, I think that's good. We're gonna get back on this podcast grind and try to commit to it. We've just uh, both been going through quite uh, quite a bit, you know, and. Um, We've just been busy, but we have an obligation to you. We want to keep this going a little bit more frequently. So please write in, uh, talk to us, Chase, give them the social media contacts, let them know. Absolutely. If you, the more you guys write in, the more fuel and fire we have to put out some episodes. So write in top two pokercast at gmail.com. Get us your hands in there. You can get them analyzed on air, uh, whether you want to be anonymous or not, get us some emails in there. Hit us up on Twitter, top two pokercasts. Uh, you can hit me on Twitter, Chase underscore Bianchi. Uh, I've been streaming on Twitch most Sundays lately. You can uh, check me out on Twitch and uh, 
that's about it, bros. Hit me up on Instagram too. I love me some Instagram fun. Just uh, search me out. Yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, kind of some of the some of the ground we covered. Uh, we'd love to know what you think of Chase losing money finally. I know we love him to death, but he was on such a heater for so long. <laughs> no, just uh, on the tipping, um, on some of the bet sizing concepts, and, and if that's helpful to you guys. We can certainly go into more depth on some of these topics if we get a lot of feedback that that's what you'd like us to do. Uh, and yeah, just stay in touch with us, as well, and we will do a better job of staying in touch with you. Thank you for listening. All right, till next time, bros. Peace. Carl! 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 <laughs> All right. What's your name, Paul? I thought you were a woman.